You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Genesis 42. And before you stand, I just want to kind of catch us up a little bit um, because we're, we're going, to, going to be stepping in um, halfway through, and you guys are, can come on in if you want. I, um, I'm not going to have them stand right away. But Genesis 42, and last week we did uh, the first half of this chapter. And so sometimes, you know, when, it's, when you're going to jump in in the middle of a chapter, it gets a little bit uh, hard to catch back up and make sure everybody's on the same page. But uh, we, at this point in the story, um, jo- we've already looked at how Joseph's brothers um, have come to Egypt. They're looking for food. And there's a famine in the land, and it's, it's, it's gone all the way into Canaan. And so Jacob sends his sons, uh, ten of his sons, he sends to Egypt because Egypt is where the food is at. And if, if you, know the, you know the story, we've been talking about it on Sunday mornings, um, how um, Joseph was sold by his brothers as a slave um, because they hated him. He was the favorite, and he ended up in Egypt in Potiphar's house, and then uh, from Potiphar's house, based on a false accusation, he ended up in prison. And in prison, he did what he did at Potiphar's house. He worked hard. He followed God and did right. And he was elevated to second in command of the prison. And even in the prison then, one day, the butler and the baker from Pharaoh's house, they came into the prison and they had dreams that troubled them. And Joseph, because he was somebody who was concerned about others, he, he looked on them. He saw they had a sad countenance. And he said, what's going on? They said, here's our dream. He interpreted their dreams, and their dreams came to pass. It was a dream from God is what was happening. And so the butler ended up back in Pharaoh's house, and then Pharaoh has dreams. I mean, these are a bunch of dreaming people, I guess, because Pharaoh has his own dreams, and he has dreams about seven uh, well-fed cows and seven healthy ears of corn, followed by seven skinny cows and seven unhealthy ears of corn that swallow up the healthy ones. He's like, what's going on? What does this mean? And none of his wise men could help him. So the butler says, hey, I know a guy. So they bring Joseph out of prison, clean him up, shave him, put on new clothes. And he's standing before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh gives the dream. And Joseph says, here's what the dream means. There will be seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. So you better put somebody wise over the seven years of abundance to save 20% of all the food so that when the seven years of famine come, you'll have plenty for yourself, but also to basically to feed the whole world. And, Je- and Pharaoh says, you look like the right kind of guy. So in one day, Pharaoh, uh, Joseph went from prisoner to second in command in the palace. It's an incredible story of God's sovereignty and God's providence. So Joseph then spent seven years um, saving up, storing up grain, storing up food for the famine that's to come. And then when the famine comes, about a couple years into the famine then, Joseph's own family comes from Canaan into Egypt. And they end up, because of God's sovereignty, they end up standing right in front of Joseph. They don't recognize him. He looks like an Egyptian. He speaks Egyptian. They end up coming before him and bowing before him, which was a fulfillment of the dream that God had given Joseph early on. And they're asking for food, and he gives them a hard time, which that's what brothers do. I mean, you naturally, especially when they sell you as a slave, okay? So he gives them a hard time, he puts them in prison, then he says, 
Okay, I want you to go back and get your younger brother. He'd asked about their younger brother if they had any other brothers. They said, we've got our younger one at home. He says, okay, I want nine of you to go back. I'm going to keep Simeon right here um, in prison until you get back with Benjamin. I want to meet him. And when you come back for food, if you don't bring Benjamin, you don't get any food. So they leave then the prison. And last week we looked at how God really worked on their consciences. And God was doing a work in their lives while they were there in, in the prison for three days. And so they head back home. And what they didn't realize is that Joseph had his men put all of their money that they brought to get the grain. He had them put it all back in their sacks. So they, one of them sees it on the way home. And now they're like, we're in big trouble. He's going to think we stole our money. Took our money back with us. And so that's kind of where we pick up our reading. They're headed home. They've got food. They've got the money they're not supposed to have. They didn't realize Joseph did it. And we're going to stand and pick up our reading then in verse 25. Genesis 25. It says, I'm sorry, Genesis 42 verse 25. Then Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn and to restore every man's money into his sack and to give them provision for the way, and thus he did unto them. I love what he does. He, he, puts the, the, he fills their corn with sack, or their sacks with corn, he restores their money, and he gives them provision for the way. Listen, that's what God does for us. At his own expense, he gives us everything we need. And I'm thankful for that. Verse 26, And they laded their asses with the corn and departed thence. And as one of them opened his sack to give his ass provender in the inn, he espied his money, for behold, it was in his sack's mouth. And he said unto his brethren, My money is restored. And lo, it is even in my sack. And their heart failed them. And they were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that God hath done unto us? Most of us don't open our wallet and see cash and think, Why is God judging me? <laughs> we're thinking, Thank you, God. Now, when you have a guilty conscience, though, you can even look at money in a weird way. Verse 29, And they came unto Jacob their father unto the land of Canaan and told him all that befell unto them, saying, The man who is the Lord of the land spake roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. And we said unto him, We are true men. We are no spies. We be twelve brethren, sons of our father. One is not, that's Joseph, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. That's Benjamin. And the man, the Lord of the country, said unto us, Hereby shall I know that ye are true men. Leave one of your brethren here with me, and take food for the famine of your households, and be gone. And bring your youngest brother unto me. Then shall I know that ye are no spies, but that ye are true men. So will I deliver you, your brother, and ye shall traffic in the land. And it came to pass, as they emptied their sacks, that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they, and both they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Think about the sorrow in his heart. Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not. And ye will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. All these things are against me. And Reuben spake unto his father, saying, Slay my two sons. Here Reuben the oldest, he's acting noble here, trying. Slay my two sons. If I bring him not to thee, can you imagine? Everyone's like, wow, that's a real sacrifice. His sons are like, dad, what are you, I mean, <laughs> slay my two sons? Slay my two sons if I bring him not to thee. 
Deliver him into my hand and I will bring him to thee again. And he said, my son shall not go down with you. This is Jacob. He's got resolve. My son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If mischief befall him by the way in the which ye go, then shall ye bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. What Jacob is saying is, Joseph and Benjamin are the two sons of my favorite wife, my first love, Rachel. His brother Joseph is already gone, and I don't want you to take him too. Verse 43, though, chapter 43, notice there are some things you can't change no matter how much resolve you have. And the famine was sore in the land. And it came to pass, when they had eaten up the corn which they had brought up or brought out of Egypt, their father said unto them, Go again, buy us a little food. And Judah spake unto him, saying, The man did solemnly protest unto us, saying, Ye shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. He said, Don't even come without Benjamin. If thou wilt send our brother with us, we will go down and buy thee food. But if thou wilt not send him, we will not go down. For the man said unto us, Ye shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. Let me reiterate. In Israel, Jacob said, Wherefore dealt ye so ill with me as to tell the man whether ye had a, yet a brother? And they said, Well, we didn't know. He, he asked us. The man asked us straightly of our state and of our kindred, saying, Is your father yet alive? Have ye another brother? And it's like he knew us already. He'd already like been stalking us on Facebook. He knew we had a younger brother. And we told him, according to the tenor of these words, could we certainly know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said unto his, Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. He says, I'm not going to give my, my sons as a sacrifice. He says, I will, be a, I will be surety. I will be the down payment. I will be the security deposit for Benjamin of my hand. Shalt thou require him? If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. For except we had lingered, surely now we had returned this second time. We would already be back with food if we hadn't waited. And their father, and just listen to what their father says. Their father Israel said unto them, If it must be so now, do this. Take of the best fruits in the land of your in your vessels and carry down the man a present, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh nuts and almonds and take double money in your hand and the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks carry it again in your hand peradventure it was an oversight take also your brother and arise go again unto the man and the most important words of the whole text he says and God almighty it's almost like he's stopped trying to figure this out himself he says, and God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may send you away, send away your other brother and Benjamin. If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. I'm just calling it this morning, if God be for me. If God be for me. We will face things in life that are beyond our control. Yet we must always remember that we have a God who is for us. We've got to keep that in mind. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you bless, bless the reading of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I remember about uh, 10 years ago, my family and I, we had traveled down to uh, Louisiana where my brother was living. And my, my brother Josh and his wife were living there in Alexandria. 
serving on a church staff. And so we went down there for Thanksgiving one year. Of course, the kids were much smaller, and Jace wasn't even around yet. And uh, we went down to see them. And I remember on Wednesday night of the Thanksgiving week, they had church. And so we went to the service. And I remember we were kind of scrambling out the door. You know how it is when you've got little ones. If you have little ones, you know how hard it can be to get everybody out the door in a timely and orderly manner. And so we were trying to get out the door to go to church. And I remember we kind of left the room a little bit in a mess. And so we got to church and and uh, we were, you know, and, and we were there uh, for a while, I know, because I preached. It was a long service. And uh, so, when, but when we got back to the house, we walked up to the door and my brother noticed that something didn't look right. The door wasn't pulled all the way to and he knows that he had shut it. And so come to find out that while we were gone, it didn't take us long once we walked inside to realize that somebody had gone and gotten into their house while we were at church and robbed their house. Walk through there. I mean, there were just things kind of torn up, things laying around everywhere, expensive things gone, you know, valuable things gone. And, and so we're trying to console them and trying to figure out what had happened, call the police. And, and then we walked into our room and I thought, oh no, the robbers have been here too. It's like, oh no, no, this is just how we left the room, actually. You know, come to find out, you know, if you leave a little chaos behind, it will obscure the valuable things in your room. So my computer bag was sitting in our room, but because the room had been left a mess, I was like, thank you, Lord, that chaos can protect you. So you know, we, uh, but you know, I, I haven't, it's never happened to me personally. It happened to my brother, but there is something strange when that happens, isn't there? If it's ever happened to you, then you know when somebody you didn't invite goes through your stuff, you feel violated. I mean, you feel like, uh, you know, that, that you feel, you know, like you didn't have control over the situation. That for a little bit, somebody else had control over something that belongs to you. And, and that makes you just feel weird. You know, if you've ever had somebody go through your car and take your stuff or, you know, somebody do that to you, it, it feels out of control. You don't like the feeling of not being able to call the shots. But the truth is, in many ways, that's kind of how life is. You know, life can feel out of control. Like, you're not the one living life, but that life is living you. And somebody's walking through your house and doing what they want to do, and that's not what you want, but you don't get to choose. You know, we all like being in control, don't we? We like some form of control. That's why, in our family, I like to drive. I like to be the one behind the wheel, and... Some of you, maybe, you, you know, men, you let your wife drive. I, I'm not sure what, how I feel about that very much. <laughs> I like to be the one driving. Now, she drives sometimes, but she's more efficient at driving. I'll say that than I am. Read into that how you will. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's plenty of times when I'm driving and I'm in control, even no matter how many times she's stepping on the phantom brake pedal in front of her. You know, I'm still in control. I've got this. I like to drive. That's why I don't like when I'm driving, I don't like to spin out on black ice. Because no matter what you do with your steering wheel, no matter what you do with your pedals, you don't have control. And that's why I like when I'm driving, I like to know where I'm going because I like to be in control. And as a man, that means I'm always in control. I always know where I'm going. <laughs> right? Men? Amen? That's right. Again, don't talk to my wife after this. I've missed a few turns in my life. 
You know, all of us prefer control. And truth is, though, sometimes it seems like everything's out of control. And you, you wake up late maybe one day because you sleep through your alarm and, and then you hit every red light on the way to work and you realize you're running out of gas and you've got to stop and then your car makes funny noises and then at work you get dumped a new project and laid on your desk that you don't have time for and when you get home there are more bills it's one thing after another one domino after another falls and you feel like you've lost control some days are like that honestly some seasons of life are like that and unfortunately for many of us, life feels out of control. And maybe you're facing a situation that makes you feel out of control. Maybe it's your finances right now. And in this economy, that wouldn't be a surprise. You know, our, we're facing a recession. There's major inflation. And maybe the current state of our economy has hit you and your business and your wallet hard. Maybe you've had a tough time uh, keeping work. And maybe, maybe you feel out of control based on some health situation that... You don't control. That makes you feel helpless, doesn't it? When, you, when your health is out of your control and you try to do what you can, but you can't fix all of it. And maybe it's your children. And you know, the, when your children are young, you have a certain amount of control because you're bigger than they are. But when they get older, I'm telling you, you've, it starts to feel out of control when you realize, no, my children, they're making their own choices for God right now. I can't control all of their decisions anymore. And that's a hard thing as a parent. It takes some faith and it takes some trusting in God because you feel out of control. In this passage, it gives us a glimpse into the mind of a man who feels like he's losing control. See, Jacob likes control. Jacob likes to control his circumstances. He likes to take matters into his own hands. We know that about him. But Jacob, though, in this story, has hit black eyes, and he's spinning, and he's turning the wheel, and he's pumping the brake, and nothing is happening. He feels like he is completely out of control. You know, his brothers, they're on, Joseph's brothers have been to Egypt. They come back without Simeon. You, we already recapped the story, and Jacob is just thinking... Man, everything is against me, he says. See, there are some truths about this, about Jacob, that I think will be a help to us today. And truth number one is this, there will be times when it seems everything's against you. There will be times when it seems like everything's against you. You see, in verse 35, after Jacob's sons come back, they find all the money in their sack, and, and when they see it, they're afraid they, they just know that Joseph, he already assumed they're spies in their minds. Now he's going to assume they're thieves as well. We can't go back and face him because he thinks we're thieves, that we have the money. Then look at what he says in verse 36. And Jacob their father said unto them, Me have you bereaved of my children, Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and ye will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. Joseph is not, he says. I mean, 22 years later, and he's still thinking about Joseph. 22 years later, and Joseph is still on his mind, um, his favorite son. Listen, you don't lose a 17-year-old son and get over it quickly. And some of you have dealt with that, and I, I hate that you've dealt with that. I'm sorry that you've dealt with that. I can't imagine that's not something you get over right away. Maybe ever. He says, Joseph is not... Um, he, he's already lost, I've already lost him. Simeon sits in an Egyptian prison cell 
And if you've ever had a son or somebody that you love or, or a relative in a tough position, and you know they're in a tough position, your mind races, doesn't it? You're thinking, how are they treating him in prison? How is he eating? Is he sleeping? Are, is he still alive? I mean, these things, you know how the mind races. He says, Joseph is not. Simeon is not. He says, now you're going to take Benjamin. And, and he thinks about the mischief that befell, uh, that befell Joseph. And he's thinking, Joseph, Benjamin's going to go and I'm going to lose him as well. You might say that Joseph is knee deep in Murphy's Law. If, it, if, it, if, it's, go, if it's bad... It's going to happen. You might call it worst case scenario. If it, whatever the worst case scenario is, that's what Joseph is thinking about. And I, I don't know, maybe you've heard of, uh, how many of you heard of the Prairie Home Companion, the radio show um, from up there in the Twin Cities area? And, you know, it's funny, kind of satire. And, and they have this on, the, uh, on that show, they have this worst case scenario segment. And in this segment... You, it's a phone service, and you can get on the phone, and you can call a guy named Ralph, and he will give you the worst-case scenario in whatever your scenario is. And so uh, there was one where the guy calls, and, he's, and, and, he's, and he gets a hold of Ralph, and, and he says, hey, my wife wants me to take her to the movies. And Ralph says, do you want me to give you the worst-case scenario? And the guy says, sure. So he says, um, when your wife is going to ask you to go get snacks. And on your way back to your seat, you're going to trip over somebody's foot. And then when you trip, you're going to spill your drinks and all your food all over the people in the row in front of you. Then they're going to get upset and sue you for everything you have. And they're going to take your house and they're going to take your money. And you're going to be left on the streets. Your wife is going to leave you and take the kids. And you're going to become a drunk and live on Skid Row. And the guy says, you know, on second thought, I think I'm going to stay in tonight. <laughs> See, we do that, though, don't we? See, we don't just stop um, at one thought. We let the thought carry on, and we go worst-case scenario after worst-case scenario until, in the end, the worst things that could happen are happening in our mind. That's where Jacob is. He is in worst-case scenario mindset. Murphy's Law, if, it, if it's bad and it can't happen... It will happen. And honestly, I don't know that I could blame J J Jacob for having this mindset. I mean, think about his life. I mean, he had, to, he had to flee Esau, his own brother who wanted to kill him. He went to Uncle Laban, served seven years for Rachel. And on his wedding night, uh, Uncle Laban switched his wife around and gave him Leah instead. He ended up with four wives. I mean, worst case scenario. He's cheated out of his salary multiple times. I mean, he's, he, nothing is, seems to go well. They have to leave kind of under cover of night to get away from Laban. And once they get to where they're going, they settle near Shechem. His daughter Dinah gets raped in Shechem. Two of his sons go into the village and slaughter the whole village. And, and one, listen, one of the reasons he didn't want, want to let Benjamin go is because Benjamin, the day he was born, was the day Rachel, his favorite wife, died. She was giving birth to Benjamin, and that's how she died. I mean, who could blame Jacob for going to the worst-case scenario? 
When that's been your life, then maybe that's how you might think. He uses the word bereaved. He says, everything's against me. Bereaved implies a miscarriage. You know, that he's lost a child. He's already lost one and maybe losing two more. He's been robbed of his children. Somebody's walked into Jacob's house while he was gone and took whatever they wanted and left a mess and walked out. And now he's having to clean up. There will be times when it seems like everything is against you. Truth number two is when it seems like everything's against you, you're going to find that your resources are not enough. When everything's against you, you will find that your resources are not enough. Reuben comes up and says, I'll give my two sons if we don't come back. And Jacob knows that he can say that and he's probably thankful for the gesture, but it doesn't mean anything. Reuben doesn't have any more control over this than Jacob does. I mean, Jacob makes it clear. My son shall not go down with you. I mean, he's the son of Rachel, my, the love of my life. I have one son left with her, and I don't want to lose him too. He's resolved. He's like, he will not go down. But you have to look at verse 1 and remember, look what it says. And the famine was sore in the land. You can say all you want. I'm going to do this. This is how I'm going to face this situation. Everything's against me, but I am going to make sure this happens. No, you don't change the famines. You can't fix the famine. You can't fix the circumstances. So Jacob says, all right, go get more food in verse 2. And and it's almost like he forgot their conversation. Judah says, no, don't you remember? I told you, Dad. The guy said, don't come back without Benjamin. If you come back, you're not getting food from me. We cannot go back without Benjamin. And Judah says, basically, he said, if we don't go back, we are going to die. We have to go back. We have to take Benjamin or we have no shot. We've got no hope. Jacob is so desperate. Look at verse 6. Israel said, wherefore dealt you so ill with me as to tell the man whether you had a brother? I mean, he's just grasping at straws. He's almost blaming his sons now. And I love what Judah does. Judah says, I will be surety. I'll take it upon myself. And listen, Judah has not really been much of a positive character in Scripture to this point. I mean, Judah's the guy uh, that left his father, went married a Canaanite woman, ended up sleeping with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and having children out of wedlock with her. He thought she was a, a harlot. and Just a terrible story. He's a man of low character, but something's changed in Judah. It's not all about himself anymore. He says, I will be surety. I'll step in and it'll be my life for Benjamin's. And in a picture of Judah's one day descendant, Jesus Christ, the Messiah who would come from the tribe of Judah, Judah says, I'll put my life on the line for his. And I just want to say, this is not a bit part of the, of the story or the point today that we're giving, but this is a picture of Jesus Christ in your life as well. And that you were without hope and you were within sin and you needed somebody to step in. And Jesus Christ, of the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, stepped in on your behalf and said, yes, I know that they're a sinner. Yes, they've done wrong. Yes, they deserve to die and be separated from me forever in a place called hell. But I'll step into their place on a cross and die in their stead and pay for their sins for them. And all he asks of you is that you, by faith, receive him as your Savior. And you can do that today. 
Don't leave without having that settled in your life. Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, died for you. By faith, place your faith in him today and you can leave saved this morning. It's almost as if though Judah's sacrifice, Judah's words take effect. Jacob says, I mean, very resigned, he's almost resigned. He says, okay, you can go. He says, take him a present, take a balm, take, take honey, take spices and myrrh and nuts and almonds and snickers. <laughs> Did I read that right? Red vines, okay. Take double money in your hand, he says. Then take the money that, we are, that he gave us back. Go and just take it. Unless it may, maybe it was an oversight. Just go and try to fix this and take your brother. And go and come again. You know, it's almost as if he knows they can't do anything but take this step. But I want you to understand, as I said, it's not about honey and almonds. He says in verse 14, and God Almighty give you mercy. See, there's a shift in his focus from everything against him to God Almighty. And here's the connection. When it seems like everything's against you and you come to the end of your resources, you've got to come to the place that you realize you're not enough. You're not enough. Listen, if there's a problem that's, out, that's bigger than you, you need a solution outside of yourself. And Jacob realizes this is not something that he can control. He's spinning and his whole life has felt out of control. His whole life he's watched things happen to him that he couldn't change. And that is life. But we have to be careful of assuming that we can handle it all in our own strength because that's not possible. You don't have it in yourself. If there's a problem outside of yourself, you can't fix it within yourself. Look at what Jacob says. He says in verse 14, And God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may send, you, send away your bro other brother and Benjamin. If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. It's like Jacob has finally come to terms with the fact that God has to do this. And whatever God does is okay with me. See, truth number one is there will be times in life that it seems everything's against you. And truth number two is when everything seems against you, then you have to realize your resources are not enough. But number three is this, when, every, when it seems like everything's against you, remember that there's a God who's for you. When everything's against you, you have a God that is for you. And listen, this is, not, this is not shallow stuff. I'm not up here saying, hey, if you just ask God, he'll sign off on everything you're doing. That's not how it works. I mean, you can't live in sin and do your own thing and go your own direction and God says, I'm for you. No, he's for you as you jump on the wagon and go his direction. He's for you as you submit to his plan. He is for you, though. He wants what's best for you. And he's given you all these resources. And he's given you all this help. And you just have to take advantage of it. And Jacob has come to a point where his whole life he's been scheming. His whole life he's tried to be in control. He's the deceiver. He's the supplanter. And his whole life is him. 
is him trying to figure out how to make it all work to control the situations. But most of his life, he has utterly failed. Most of his life, it's been out of control. And we have to do the same thing. We've got to come to the place that we realize we don't have power and we don't have strength and we don't have wisdom. We have to look to something outside of ourselves and bigger than ourselves if we are going to endure the most difficult situations of life. And that is when everything seems against you, that's when it's time to trust the God who is for you. Jacob uses the term God Almighty. And it comes from the Hebrew name for God, which is El Shaddai. And El Shaddai, it, it means that God, they have a couple meanings. Number one is that God has all power and all strength and all might. That's a pretty good thing to remember when it seems like everything's against you. Because no matter what's against you, God's still stronger. But Shaddai, that part of the word, it has to do with a mother and uh, nursing her child. So it's not just that God has all power and all might and all strength, but that he knows if we don't have his nourishment, we, have, we won't survive. So he doesn't just have it, he gives it. He's a haver and a giver. He has all power and might and strength, and he gives it to his children. He makes it available to us. He says, you don't have enough resources. As an infant, you would die without your mother. And as a Christian, as a child of God, listen, as a dad, you would fail utterly without his help. As a mom, you would fail at, without God's help. As a Christian, you can't do it without him. You cannot do anything without God. You are completely and utterly dependent on his strength and his wisdom and his power. And it's time for us to come to terms with that. We have El Shaddai at our disposal. And why am I trying to carry this on my own? He makes those resources available. The Christian, listen, when it seems like everything's against you, that's when it's time to remember who's for you. The psalmist said in Psalm 56, 9, When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? If God is for me, who do I have to worry about being against me? If God Almighty is on your side, what do you have to be worried about? If God be for me, who can be against me? You can either choose to focus on all the things working against you or you can remember who is with you. Because compared to God, your troubles, your problems, your trials, the situations of life, they, compared to God, they are small. They are powerless. See, the issue is when we focus on the problems and we focus on the issues and we focus on the trials of life, the longer we look at them, the bigger they get. It's like worry is like miracle grow. My wife and I were just came up with this yesterday. It's good, good stuff. Worry is like miracle grow. Because all you're doing is you're focusing on your problem. And the longer you focus on the problem, the bigger your problem gets. And God moves smaller because he's further away in the background. Your problem gets bigger, God gets smaller. But the longer that then that you focus on God and he is magnified, he gets bigger, then your problems suddenly get smaller and smaller. Because compared to God, your problems are small. And we've got to get to the place 
that we focus on who's on our side and who is for us rather than who is against us. How did this work for Jacob? Well, turn to Genesis 35. Genesis 35. This is earlier on. This is after, um, after Jacob had left. And Look at Genesis 35 verse 9. And God, this is after all the issues that he had with, uh, um, with Laban. And he's come back in the land, headed back to Canaan. It says, and God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob, thy, thy, thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am, what's the next two words? God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. See, when, the, when Jacob was so worried about losing his sons... He'd lost sight of the fact that El Shaddai had already appeared to him. El Shaddai had already come to him and said, I'm gonna make, I've already made a promise, let me reconfirm my promise. There are going to be kings come from you. Nations will come from you. I've made promises to you and I will keep those promises. You see, that's the promise that God blesses us. He is for us. When our problems get so big though, we forget he's made those promises. And we have to stop when we're in the middle of the trial. And remember that God's word is still sure. And his promises are still real. And we go back to what he's already said. And that reminds us, oh yeah, I forgot. He told me already, I'm going to be fruitful. He told me already that we're going to multiply. He already told me that he's got this in his hands. And I just wonder while Judah is saying, Father, I'll be surety for you. If God just prompted Jacob in that time, hey, remember when I came? Remember when I made that promise? Remember when I told you I've already got this? It's as good as done because my word is sure. So why are you focused on all the negatives when you have these promises from your father, God Almighty, El Shaddai? And Jacob had to switch gears. And he had to stop focusing on all that was wrong and realize, okay, everything may seem against me, but I have somebody for me. And the one that's for me is greater than all of those against me. See, that's how Jacob could finally let go of Benjamin. He had already witnessed the power of God. He already had God's word in his life. And he had resources already proven. God had already come through for him before. And listen, God has given you resources too. He's given you resources like his word. And when the problems get so big that you can't see anything else, you still have God's word and it's never been proven wrong. It's always been true. So stop focusing on the problem and go to God's word. You know another resource that you have that most people don't take advantage of? You've got a local church family. And you say, well, I just don't know. I don't, I don't really think that's how God really intended for us to, you know, just to be all, you know, plugged in and locked in and give our lives to church. Well, that, this is his institution that he died for. He gave himself for it. 
So don't, don't, you can't tell me that it's not important to him. That he knows in order for us to survive the difficulties and trials and troubles of life when everything is against us, we need support, we need help, we need friends, we need prayer, we need each other. You can't do it on your own. So you say, well, well, I just need God. Well, he's given you resources already in a place like this. If you just lock yourself in and just plug in, he can help you. He doesn't expect you to do it all by yourself. But most people, though, when they go through the trials, they try to do it on their own and they skip the resources God has already put into their lives. God has not left us without help. You just need to remember, though, that when the worst case scenarios come, you have a God who's already considered the worst case scenario. In Romans 8, I already read, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? But you know what else he said in Romans 8, 32, the next verse? He that spared not his son, but delivered him up, delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And here's the thing. If God gave his son to die on the cross for you, your biggest problem was sin. And if God has already made a plan, to fix your greatest problem. Do you think you're going to face anything else that's outside of his power? I mean, if he died and rose, the tomb is empty now. Is there really anything in your life right now that your God can't fix? That is over his head? That's too big for him to handle? Sin is our worst case scenario. And God already solved that one. So everything else is well within his power. Jacob, I mean, not only that, he can turn our worst case scenarios into that which is a best case scenario. I mean, think about it. If Jacob, if Joseph had never been cast into a pit and sold as a slave 22 years earlier, they wouldn't be eaten right now. So God may be in your worst case scenario right now, working all of it out so that someday it turns into the best case scenario for you. Only a God like ours can do that kind of stuff. When I was, when I was a, a sixth grader, I, my parents signed me up for football for the first time. I wanted to play all my, I just moved to a different school. And fifth grade, all my friends were playing football and I really wanted to play. So sixth grade, my parents signed me up for football and, and I got put on the Eagles. And the Eagles were kind of like the cast off team. Like, you know, the guys that hadn't played before. We need another team. Let's put all the guys that hadn't played, put them on this team. But what they didn't know when we were, they were putting the teams together was there was a, there was a guy who was, he was actually a man who was going to coach the team, and his son came along with him. And his son's name was Casey. And I remember the first time I saw Casey as a sixth grader, um, he walked in and he was about, he, as a sixth grader, about 5'5", five, five, 175 pounds of muscle. And I was like, this is a good thing. We started practicing, and Casey was just amazing. And the second or third day of practice, my, uh, the coach said, hey, Jason, come over here. I want you to try to take some snaps. So, so he said, um, you know, he put me at quarterback. I'm, I don't, I've never played football before. And I'm, I'm thinking, man, he can, he can, this guy can spot skill when, when, when he sees it. <laughs> so, you know, I'm taking snaps, and, and I'm doing this. My dad shows up to practice that day. And he sees me with the quarterbacks, and my, and my dad's like, Are you? and I'm like, yeah, and my dad's like, yes, living vicariously through me, you know. 
And I thought, man, I thought they wanted me at quarterback because, man, I just, I'm just solid knowledge of the offense and I just quick on my feet. No, they just wanted somebody to hand the ball to Casey. The first game we started playing and I handed the ball to Casey. Um, every play on offense, we gave the ball to Casey. He scored about eight touchdowns. On defense, he was our nose tackle. He had like 12 sacks, okay? They couldn't do anything against him, offense or defense. We blew out the first team. That was the team that won the championship the year before. We went through the whole season. We had nine games, and we won every one of them, and nobody had scored on us the whole season. Last game, championship game, we blew them out again. Undefeated season. That whole season... As the quarterback, I'd like to take some credit for the season. But as the quarterback, I never, there were maybe five plays all season where the ball didn't go to Casey. And you might have some, you know, parents these days that say, that's just not fair. My child needs to touch the ball. And no, when you, listen, when you're on the team and you're undefeated, give the ball to Casey. <laughs> Casey went on to play at University of Nebraska. Okay, played big time football. And you know, see, here's the thing. When you have a player like Casey, give the ball to him. And I know it's a silly illustration, but when you have a father like ours, give him the ball. We're trying to run on our own. We're not as big. We're not as strong. We're not as fast. We're not as wise. We don't have the answers. Give it the ball to the one who can. And stop trying to carry it on your own. Because in yourself, you have very limited resources, but you serve a God who has none. How, I mean, and A.W. Tozer um, said it this way. I don't want to mess it up. A.W. Tozer said, how completely satisfying to turn from our limitations to a God who has none. And maybe you've been carrying a burden you shouldn't have to be bearing. Let me just remind you, you have a, when everything's against you, you have a God who's for you. I'm not saying he's signing off on your sin. No, turn from that. But if you'll get on board with his plans and you have his resources, and really, honestly, it's the best life. When everything's against you, you have a God who's for you. And if you have a father like that, just give him the ball. Stop carrying those burdens on your own. Listen, if you've come this morning and you don't know that you're saved, you say, I don't know that I've ever received Christ as my Savior. If I died today, I don't know that I'd spend eternity in heaven. Well, um, that's a problem bigger than you. But he already sent his son. He delivered his son up for us all. He already fixed your worst case scenario. And even this morning, if you'll come and place your faith in him, he can fix your worst case scenario too. And you can walk out of here saved. Christian, are you carrying something you don't have to be? Listen, if you have a father like ours, let's just give him the ball. Let's stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Appreciate your attention this morning. If the Lord's working on you about response today, you're carrying something bigger than you can bear, why would you keep carrying the ball when you have somebody who can carry it better than you can? Maybe you'd say, I don't know that if I died today that I'd be on my way to heaven. Is that you today? I mean, just 
maybe even just with a raise of your hand, nobody's looking around, would you say, I don't know that if I died that I'd, I'd spend eternity in heaven. I don't know that I have a relationship with God. Does that describe you? Just raise it. Look, looking around the room, nobody's looking. Would you raise your hand and say, I, I don't know for sure that if I died today, I'd, I'd spend eternity in heaven. Anybody like that this morning? I think in a room this size, there probably are some. Christian, are you carrying a burden that you shouldn't be bearing? Trying to do it all on your own when you have a God who's for you. I listen, everything seems against you, but you've got a God who's for you. You'll just jump in on his plan. He'll work, he can turn your worst case scenario into the best case scenario. Would you be willing to submit to him this morning? Father, I pray that you have your will and way work on us today and help us to submit to you. I thank you for your word and your power and the promises that you make. Help us to remember that you're for us in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.